The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This sermon uh, was preached on November the 24th, Sunday, at White Ridge Baptist Church. I'm re-preaching it on Tuesday for those that uh, need to hear it. So we've been in the book of Genesis, and last week we've been talking about the days of creation, and then we got into the uh, whole image of God, which we've been unpacking for the last several weeks. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we began a new section of the book. It was the little Hebrew word tolido that signaled that change, which gave us an indication that the writer is moving on to a new section. The first section dealt with the six days of creation and the seventh day of God's rest. The next section that we're entering talks more about God's provision for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and this place that God made for them to live and work and play and worship. And so in studying this chapter 2, we have understood that being created in the image of God means that we are co-rulers with God. We have dominion, that we are co-creators with God. He joins us in his work on this earth, and that we're resters as well with God. We are invited into Sabbath rest, that we are spiritual beings, not only bodies, physical bodies, but also souls filled with the breath of God. And then today we are going to look at the fact that we are moral choice beings with the capacity to make our own choices in life. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at this section together. We're going to read Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up from every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the only one. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of the Syria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. May God bless his word today. If I were to ask you to name two kinds of trees, 
I would guess that some of you would say that there are coniferous trees, evergreens with cones, and there are deciduous trees that lose their leaves in the fall. And if I were to ask you about the two trees in the Garden of Eden, we see two very different kinds of trees there as well. And yet, as we read about them in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we see two trees, but in chapter, the final chapters of the, book of, the, of the book of Revelation in the Bible, we find only one of these two trees is in that heavenly city described in Revelation 22. The two kinds of trees that are in the garden are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except in Genesis 2 and 3, whereas the tree of life is mentioned not only in Revelation in chapter 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I grant to eat from the tree of life, as well as three times in chapter 22 of that heavenly city of Jerusalem. But it's also mentioned in the wisdom literature of Proverbs on various occasions. For example, Proverbs 3, 18, it says, she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. And so we get this very clear indication that to eat from the tree of life is to be wise, to live under God's wisdom, his provision, and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to be foolish and to follow your own wisdom. Over 200 years ago, the philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote this, two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe, the longer and more earnestly I reflect on them, the starry heavens without and the moral law within. In the passage that we're looking at today, what we want to focus on particularly is this gift that God the Creator gives, that He has an expectation that as moral creatures, men and women will give back to God their obedience. Some would say that this moral choice reality in humans is the center of what it means to be created in the image of God, to make moral judgments. It's interesting that the prohibition in the Scriptures the prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not the first commandment that is breakable or disobeyable. So, for example, God also said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, but they could have chosen not to do that. He, was, he told them to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the creatures. They could have chosen not to do that. They're told to work the garden and to keep it. They could have chosen not to work it and keep it. To give names to the animals and creatures, they could have chosen not to do that. But all of those would have been sins of omission, disobeying by not doing something. But clearly, this command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the first sin of commission that they would or could commit. And so... Let's take a look at the garden before we look specifically at the two trees. The garden really was an invitation to intimacy with God, their creator and father. We read throughout Genesis 1 that everything God made was good. 
chapter 2 as well, we see that everything God did for Adam and Eve was good. He created them in his image. He breathed into them the breath of life so that they became immortal souls. He prepared a, a paradise garden for them to live in. He gave them night and day, sleep and waking hours, springs of water, plants and animals, precious metals, flowers, fruit trees, everything they needed, they had, including the joy of working in God's garden. It was a sacred space where all relationships were harmonious. Relationship with God, with one another, with animals, and even the land itself gave them no trouble. But we must not forget that the most important feature of the garden was God himself. It was a garden for certain. It was a garden, but it was a temple as well. God dwelt in his first earthly sanctuary there in the Garden of Eden. It was the presence of God that made the garden a glorious place. Just as somebody asked one time, do you think that you would want to be in heaven if God were not there? Of course not. It was God's presence in the garden that made the difference. And in fact, years later, when the people of God were building the temple, they chose to decorate it with so many of the same images that were found in the Garden of Eden. God also provided man with the responsibility of work and with Sabbath rest. They were given the privilege of being stewards of God's presence, of God's world, I mean, and they were given a paradise God's own presence as well. Nothing wrong there. A good God made a good world for the good of his creation. And at the end of chapter 2, the most, one of the most precious gifts, the last gift that God mentions in these chapters was a helpmate suitable for Adam. He gave him a wife. He gave them marriage, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Have fun. Chapter 2 ends with this statement, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This summary speaks of the purity and innocence of Adam and Eve at this stage in the garden. The absence of any shame, the trust and vulnerability that existed between two humans as well as with God. With no sin or anything else, to hinder the relationship. Now let's go on to talk about the two trees, two very different trees. When Pat and I were in California at the triennial meetings in 2015, we visited a state park there and were given a tour of the tallest redwood trees in California some of them reaching up to 380 feet high. One tree that size drinks in 300 to 500 gallons of water a day. And the root system is only 6 to 10 feet deep below the surface of the ground. The tour guide said to us that these tree roots intertwine and lock to provide stability. But then looking at the other kind of tree, a deciduous tree, they have root systems that go so deep, often as far down below the ground as the tree goes above the ground. Some, the tallest deciduous tree known is about 190 feet tall, much shorter than the red pines, the redwood trees. The greatest 
depth of root system in a deciduous tree, though, is 400 feet, a wild fig tree that is in South Africa, or the greatest spread of the tree is in the banyan tree in India, which has a, a width two to three times that of the tree above ground. And so there's two very different kinds of trees on planet Earth, and there were two very different kinds of trees in the Garden of Eden. When God planted these two trees, we're told that they're special, given special mention, because it says that they are in the center of the garden. There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, verse 9. And this happy, newlywed couple were told that they were free to eat from any tree of the garden, including the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they shall not eat of it, because when they do, if they do, in that day they will surely die, verse 17. Hidden between the lines of this story is one gift that God gave to Adam and Eve, their freedom. The very words describing the provision of the tree of life to eat from it and the prohibition against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to not eat from it is very much central to the fact that we are image bearers with the capacity to choose right from wrong, good from evil, moral choice beings that can choose how we live, free to say yes or no, to do or not do, to obey or disobey, even the God who made us. What kind of dangerous gift is that, amen? Well, let's take a look at some of the observations. First of all, the names of the trees are, should not be confusing. Eating from the tree of life represented choosing life that God had provided for them in the garden, total reliance on God. Sometimes this is defined in the Bible as wisdom. Adam and Eve did not just eat, eat once from that tree. They were invited to nurture themselves daily with its fruit because it is linked to their relationship with God. If you wanted to find God in the Garden of Eden, you just had to go to the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, though, is really indicative of human knowledge pursued outside of God's provision, prideful knowledge, knowledge that goes beyond innocence, to understand not just good, but to understand evil as well, which to date they knew nothing about. I mean, I can imagine them discussing it before the serpent even tempted them I can imagine Adam and Eve talking with each other and saying, what do you think this thing called evil is? And, and, and what is death? What does God mean? We'll surely die. Secondly, the fact that these trees are planted at the center of the garden probably means that we are to take from that, that at the heart of what God wants for us is the tree of life. That, but in reality, there are also two ways of living from the heart the way of the tree of life, which is dependency on God, and the way of independence, which is based on human knowledge and understanding. And so, thirdly, the trees then represent two ways of the human heart, the way of wisdom and the way of folly or pride, the way of humility or the way of pride and independence from God. <clears throat> Excuse me. John Piper wrote this. So what was God saying in prohibiting the eating 
of one tree out of a million trees? Well, he was saying, I've given you life. I've given you a world full of pleasure, pleasures of taste and sight and sound and smell and feel and nourishment. And only one tree is forbidden to you. And the point of that prohibition is to preserve the pleasures of the world because if you eat of that one, you will be saying to me, I'm smarter than you. I'm more authoritative than you. I'm wiser than you are. I think I can care for myself better than you can care for me. You're not a very good father, and so I'm going to reject you. And so don't eat from that tree because you'll be rejecting me and all my good gifts and my wisdom and my care. Instead, keep on submitting to my will. End of quote. If we run ahead in the story, as we all could easily do, we know that they do decide to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They do it because it looks so appetizing. They do it because the serpent tempted them. And we might ask ourselves, why did they need to be evicted from the garden just for eating from the tree? I know we're running ahead of ourselves here a little bit, but in order to understand these trees, I think we need to understand this question. Why did they need to be evicted from the garden just for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, a common explanation is this, that God hastened to evict Adam and Eve from the garden, not as a punishment, but as a protection. Because he feared, it says in Genesis 3, 22, lest the man put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, the effect of this would have been to make sinners and sin immortal. Imagine being immortal, but always subject and slavery to sin and the evils that come from sin. God was merciful to kick our forefathers out of the garden and provide a way back into that garden through his son Jesus. Imagine having eternal life, living forever in an imperfect world with eternal evil. That was never God's plan. You see, the tree of life doesn't offer any easy way out of the mess of good and evil just by having knowledge of it. Something had gone wrong in Eden and it had to be made right. Good and evil had to be dealt with in this imperfect world before we could return to Eden's perfection. And so that's why the tree of life appears again in the last book, of, in the last chapter of Revelation. The Apostle John is given a vision of the river of life-giving water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it says, on either side of the river grew the tree of life that produces fruit 12 times a year, once each month. And the leaves of the trees serve as medicine or healing for the nations. So the Garden of Eden will be restored and made accessible again, praise God, but not by the way of the first Adam, who was our representative head. No, it will instead be made available because of faith in the second Adam, the man that God appointed, his only son, Jesus Christ. Only in him can we find eternal life, intimacy with God restored, that which was lost in the garden restored, and only in him can we find the affections of our hearts changed so that we are able to obey God with sincerity and truth. And this leads us to our last point with 
with regards to this sermon, and that is, how do these, how do these two trees have to do with the choices that we make day by day? What does it have to teach us? Are we interested in pursuing God's image or self-image? <clears throat> the world we live in does not accept that we were created by a loving and all-powerful God and that his image stamped upon us has been marred by sin and needs healing and repair. The world preaches a message of freedom indeed, but that freedom is a freedom from the very God who designed and created you and knows you best. You know, you can hardly watch TV for an hour before, whether in a program or a commercial, the message of human and individual freedom and autonomy is displayed and spoken with, with great pride. Everything from Disney to Oprah. I remember, I mean, I just this past week as I was reading some things, I came across the words of a song that was written in 2011, performed by Lady Gaga, a song and a video called Born This Way. It is her own twisted version of not only human pride and independence, but it begins with a monologue. <clears throat> and the monologue is called The Manifesto of Mother Monster. It's an alien story of origins that produce a new humanity with no prejudice or judgment but boundless freedom. And yet, even in this monologue, there is the birth of evil, and this agony of two ultimate forces begins in this dualism, and the pendulum of choice dances back and forth. But in the actual song, the lyrics go like this. Lady Gaga sings, it doesn't matter if you love him, or capital H-I-M, just put your paws up because you were born this way baby. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, baby. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. And with such logic, the world encourages people to justify whatever choices please them. Express yourself. Be you. Follow your own path. Just like Adam and Eve, every human, I believe, stands between two trees and has a choice to make, the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Today, self-image, self-expression, self-worth, self-esteem, these have become the gods of the age, never to be offended. And selfies, oh my, they are the mark of self-confidence as we prop up ourselves to what we hope is a watching world that we hope is as interested in me as I am interested in me. Oh, wow. Where does God fit into this crazy self-orientation? Well, if he fits in at all, he is God with a small g who simply works to make me a better me. Someone said that God created us in his own image and then we turn, return the favor 
and created him in our image. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking this, so why don't we speak to it? We, living after the fall of Genesis chapter 3, indeed have this propensity toward wrong choices. It flows out of a corrupted and sinful heart, but that was not the world that Adam and Eve were born into or were birthed into or created into. How did the appetite for disobedience ever come to them? Well, that is a great question, and it deserves a longer answer, perhaps, but let me give you just the brief explanation that I think really does answer the question. I like what Henry Blosher says in one of his books called Original Sin. He sums up the answer by saying that Adam and Eve's ability to disobey God's command is simply, quote, the imperfection that is native to the moral creature. To me, that makes sense. It's the imperfection that is native to any moral creature. Let me ask you a few questions to help clarify what he means. How could God truly endow us with the divine image and not give us free moral choice? How could God be truly glorified in creatures who really have no choice but to obey him and worship him like robots? How could we bear the image of God if we really didn't have the capacity to love and be loved or to not love and not be loved, to reject his love? Now, this may or may not satisfy your curiosity, but I, I believe it really does address the root of why it is moral choice was essential in the garden. And so, how is it that we handle this precious gift of freedom of choice, and how do we face temptations that come by way of sin? The author, William Golding, many of you, I'm sure, in high school would have read his book, Lord of the Flies. Someone said about William Golding that he saw in man a being who manufactured evil the way a bee makes honey. In the book, this classic novel, Lord of the Flies, Golding tells the story of a hell that a group of schoolboys make out of an island paradise. Over time, the boys degenerate into a group of savages bent on hurting and killing one another. And this key point comes in the story when the principal character named Ralph realizes the predicament that they've got themselves into, and with a sober recognition, he says to himself, I'm afraid of us. And I think that if we're honest, in our honest moments, we've had the experience of being afraid of us. We understand that there is in within us the human potential for hurting and being hurt. Mark Twain said that man is the only animal that blushes or needs to blush. And so to, the, to get to the root of it, I want to just quote uh, to you from a Puritan writer from the 17th century named John Owen. I love what he says. It's written in the insert in your bulletin. He says, no choice is ever made without some degree of affection. Therefore, affections are in the soul as the helm is in the ship. If it be laid hold on by a skillful hand, he turns the whole vessel which way he pleases. It is vain to contend with anything that has the power of our affections in its disposal. It will prevail 
at last. And so rather than examine our will when we face sin and to see how much resolve our will has, rather than doubling down against sin and trying harder and harder, the Bible has another solution for overcoming temptation. Paul teaches about it in Romans chapter 7 and 8. He says in Romans 7 that sin is like an unwelcome tenant, a resident evil within every one of us. Our experience is like Paul. He said, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Sin creeps around in our hearts, affections, and desires to master us. But the way we master it is in bringing our desires, our appetites, and our affections to Jesus daily. He wants our hearts. So don't wait. The answer is don't wait for desires to bear fruit in sin. Put the ax to the root of desire. And so again, the, the focus is not on the fruit, it's on the root of the trees in your heart. Eat. He wants us to eat from the tree of life, to trust in his provision rather than to run off and provide for ourselves. He wants us to eat from the tree of life, to look at where do our affections come from? What are our appetites? Do I have in my heart the desire to love God with all of my being? Or do I have other affections that are toying with my heart there? God wants us not to be led away by our own sinful appetites. But I want you to know, and hear me please on this, he also wants you not to condemn yourself that you might have evil desires in your heart that crowd in to try and kidnap you from the Father's house. The heart's affections, that's the battlefield where the flesh tirelessly disputes the supremacy of God and the Spirit in our lives. There's the battlefield. The flesh is disputing the supremacy of God in you like a tenant that has been evicted and yet continues living on on the premises or comes back to try and plot and squat in the premises of your heart that has been given to Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom you find the tree of life. He is the one in whom you find all that you need and the Lord's mercy is always bigger than any sin that we could ever sin. And we need to have our imaginations ravaged by the love of God to recognize that he is greater than all our sin. I love what F.B. Meyer tells a story about a woman who had a boy with scarlet fever. He came home from school one day very sick. She met him at the door. She brought him in took him to his room, tucked him into bed. And she said to him, I am not going to leave you until you are well, son. And she stayed at home with him. She cared for him until he was well again. And F.B. Meyer adds to this story, he says this, do you think that she loved the boy less because it took him so long to become well again? And of course, the answer we know in our hearts is, of course not. She loved her son. It didn't matter that it took him longer to get better than maybe someone else with scarlet fever. And F.B. Meyer adds these words. 
He said, then why do you think that God would love you less simply because it is taking you so long to overcome some of your sins? God hates sins. Oh, he loves his children, though. This is from a book called The Christ Life for the Self-Life. And I want to read to you in closing a a quote again from F.B. Myers that I hope will encourage you. It is a statement that you can say to your own soul. O soul, you have thought ill of your God. You thought that because you have so often fallen that God was tired of you. You forget that his tender mercies are infinite and that he will never let you go, never leave your side, never until in heaven he kisses your face, where there will be no more effect of sin upon you, your God will kiss your soul into health. Let me pray for you. Father God, as we conclude this message, for anybody that has been listening, I pray, would you meet them, O oh God, right now? Would you help them to see, indeed, that you have given them the possibility of eating daily from the tree of life, which is found in your Son, Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. And we pray that they will learn to obey you and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Father, would you help us in our frailty, in our weakness, and get all the glory through us because we are your image bearers and we want to reflect your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.